Well, hey there. My name is Pastor Tim, and you have found my podcast. I currently serve as the pastor of First United Methodist Church of Fort Pierce, Florida, and I'm so grateful to be able to connect with you in this way. This podcast is a collection of my sermons and teachings that I hope you will use to deepen and strengthen your connection with Jesus Christ so that you might go and transform the world around you. So kick back, relax, and enjoy this week's episode. Well, you know, the greatest question, really, that any human uh, ever needs to answer throughout the, the story of their entire lifetime is this. Who do you say that Jesus Christ is? And as the church, as Christians, we need to be, like, really, really clear about our answer to this question. Because if it's not like some variation of Jesus Christ is God who came and lived among us, whose, whose death saved us from sin and death, and whose resurrection has enabled us to live new and renewed lives, then, well, we have some problems that we need to work out. But assuming that, that this is uh, who we say Jesus Christ is, then the next greatest question that we need to answer is, what is my Bible? On this, there, there's, there's many different streams of thought that, that have developed over the, the ages as we've studied this book. And, and so we have to answer, like, is it, is it a divine rule book? Is it a clear and accurate history of the world? Is it... Is it a secret code that we have to figure out? And along with that, the question, how did it come to be? Did it, did it drop out of the sky? Was it divinely, literally dictated by God? Or completely on the other end, is it purely human? Or is it something else? And so my hope over the next several weeks is to give you some language to use that will both help you articulate what the Bible is and how it functions as, as a vehicle for making the will and activity of God known in the world. But I don't want to just give you language to describe it. I want you to broadly understand how the Bible actually functions. And so what I'll say over and over again is this. The Bible is one story that leads to Jesus. And what I mean by that is that this whole thing, every word of it, every small narrative that seems to serve no purpose, is serving the purpose of informing and propelling forward the story of God's relationship with humanity and how that relationship finds its ultimate climax and ultimate fulfillment in the person and work of Jesus Christ. And what we will find out is that the answer to the greatest question, who is Jesus Christ, comes to us through our Bible if we are astute and diligent enough to read it on its own terms. And so for eight weeks, which I know seems like a long time, but, but for eight weeks, we're going to overview the Bible together. 
And we can't cover it all, and I can't even ask you to go home and read it all over that period of time. But, but what we're going to do is we're going to cover major themes throughout the story as it develops and as they are revealed. And together what we're going to do is we're going to discover how this whole thing, this whole thing right here, revolves around Jesus Christ. And so today we'll begin our journey where any good journey should begin. Page 1, Genesis chapters 1 through 11, more specifically. And, and they're going to be our starting point and, and the overarching theme that we're going to discover in these chapters is going to be creation, which likely makes some sense to you if you've read this thing before. And so this chunk of Scripture is going to take on kind of two major parts. Chapters 1 and 2 detail the act of creation— while the next eight chapters, 3 through 11, detail what I call decreation. Others have called it the fall throughout history, but I like the term uh, decreation for reasons that will become clear to you shortly. And so keep that in mind as this discussion kind of moves forward. And so let's just start at the beginning, shall we? So this is Genesis 1, 1, and 2. It says, In the beginning, when God created the heavens and the earth, the earth was a formless void, and darkness covered the face of the deep, while a wind from God swept over the face of the waters. So you probably heard these verses like a million times before, but I hope that Maybe today we can unlock something here in this very opening sentence of the Bible that helps us to see the very ways and purposes of God. And so um, when I was a kid, right, when I was a kid, I loved uh, Legos. And I think most kids do, right? And the beautiful thing about the progression of Lego enthusiasm is you kind of go from these extra big blocks that you can't swallow and you give to toddlers to these giant bins of just random small Lego bricks that you get uh, handed down to you from family members and friends to finally actually getting these, these sets of Legos that you buy at the store. And they, they come with instructions and all the pieces needed to, to create a specific thing, like uh, a castle. I was a castle guy, personally. Uh, a house, or even the Millennium Falcon from Star Wars, right? Like, whatever. But regardless of, you know, whichever stage of the Lego game you are in, when, when you get those babies home from the store or from the neighbor's house or whatever, and you rip, and open, rip open the package and dump them on the floor, they are just this chaotic mess of bricks that cause unforeseen pain to the feet of innocent people trying to walk through the room. They are, in essence, everything that you need to build what they're intended to build, yet they're a mess. They're actually useless. They're downright dangerous. And this is really the scene that we've got at the beginning of our Bibles. God's creative action begins, and we're told that everything was a mess. It wasn't looking good. The earth was a formless void, it says. The Hebrew language actually creates a little poetic moment here. The, the words are tohu vavohu, which we translate as formless void and sometimes more accurate, accurately translate as formless and void, 
but they simply mean in their, their most basic form, wild and waste. And the point here is that, that God is looking at, at a floor filled with meaningless, unorganized Lego bricks, and he's like, man, this isn't good. Nothing is in its right place. It's, it's wild, and it's got potential, but it's a waste. My mom used to say that about me. <laughs> this isn't good. Not to mention that there's this thing here called the deep, which is like an ancient Near Eastern conception of chaotic waters that threaten to swallow up any living thing. And so we've got like a not great situation here. But we, we have some hope because there's a wind. Better translated, the spirit of God hovering over the water. And things are about to make sense. And so what God does next is he takes to ordering this disaster, right? This disorder. He, he makes something tame out of what was wild. He, he gives form to the formless. And so what God does is creates over three days realms. He, he makes the sky, he makes the sea, and he makes the land. And in ordering these elements, God creates a place for the creatures that he's soon to create. A place for each that is suitable for sustaining their life. Sky, sea, and land. Clearly defined and separate from one another. And then on days four through six, he creates the sun and the moon, the birds of the air, the fish of the sea, the animals of the land, with the climax being his special creation. This is Genesis 1 26 through 27 it says then God said let us make humankind in our image according to our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea over the birds of the air and over the cattle and over the wild animals of the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps upon the earth and and so God created humankind in his image in the image of God he created them male and female he created them and this, not even so subtly, sums up the point of creation. Like, what creation was really intended for. See, God's intent in crea for creation is that it be a, a life-giving, life-sustaining action that, that makes order out of chaos. It, it tames the wild, it gives purpose to what has been wasted, and then shares the blessing and responsibility of maintaining that tame and purposeful life, giving state with humanity. His images here on earth, those whom he gave dominion of it all over. We good? <laughs> Your brain exploding? Do you need like a drink of water? All right. <laughs> That's good, because this is like the foundation of everything. And there, there's a lot more here, uh, but we don't have time for all that. So we have to move on. But uh, just know that um, I love this stuff, <laughs> all right? Man, I love it. But we got to jump forward a little bit. And so um, the gist uh, of chapters 2 and 3 uh, are kind of, chapter 2 is, is a retelling of creation with, with a special emphasis on the garden, a special place called Eden that God created, and a special person that God created whom he put in the garden and then split in two to make two humans. 
And in this garden, it houses in the middle of it the, the tree of life. And all of God's goodness, all of God's life-giving presence flows from the center of the garden out to the rest of the world. And all he says is like, hey, man, guys, you two, take care of this thing. And like, don't eat from that one over there. Good? And they're like, yeah, good. And then it's not good because they eat from the tree, right? They mess up, boom, get the boot from the garden. And this is kind of the beginning of what I call decreation. The, the disobedience of humanity has, has broken part of creation because melted and, and molded into the act of creation was, the, was the, the hope that God had, that we humans would rule it on his behalf with righteousness and goodness and obedience. And so humans had like one job to do, right? Maintain the order of creation on God's behalf, rule over it just as God would have, and now, poof, they have proven themselves to not be very reliable. But not all hope is lost just yet. But have no fear. Humans are going to take pretty quick work of that. And so this is what happens next. It says, now the man knew his wife Eve, and she conceived and bore Cain, saying, I have produced a man with the help of the Lord. And next she bore his brother Abel, and now Abel, Abel was a keeper of sheep, and Cain a tiller of the ground. And so in the course of time, Cain brought to the Lord an offering of the fruit of his ground. And Abel, for his part, brought the firstlings of his flock, their, their fat portions. And the Lord had regard for Abel and his offering, but for Cain, his offering, he had no regard. So Cain was very angry, and his, his countenance fell. And the Lord said to Cain, Why are you angry, and why has your countenance fallen? You know, if you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, well, then sin is lurking at the door, and its desire is for you. But you must master it. And so Cain said to his brother Abel, hey, let's, let us go out to the field. And when they were in the field, Cain rose up against his brother Abel and killed him. And then the Lord said to Cain, where is your brother Abel? And he said, I don't know. Am I my brother's keeper? And the Lord said, what have you done? Listen, your brother's blood is crying out to me from the ground. So there we have the record of the first murder in human history, the first real act of violence, which if creation's purpose is to sustain life, then violence, murder, clearly an act of decreation. Even the language, right? Your brother's blood is crying out from the ground. That very same ground from which God took dirt and created all life is now saturated in the evidence of death. And this is a, a toxic reality. It's a toxic reality that, that violence continues to, to fill the earth until we get this scene from Genesis chapter 6. It says, the, loss, the Lord saw that the wickedness of humankind was great on the earth. And that every inclination of the thoughts of their hearts was only evil continually. And the Lord was sorry that he made humankind on the earth, and it grieved him to his heart. 
And so the Lord said, I'll blot out from the earth the human beings that I have created. People together with animals and creeping things and birds in the air, for I'm sorry that I made them. But Noah, Noah found favor in the sight of the Lord. You know, so this is like a really hard part of the Bible to reconcile for a lot of people. And what we have to understand is that, that violence and evil have become the main vocations of humans. They, they have become agents of decreation rather than agents of creation like God had created them to be. And so he's like, that's it. I can't let this go on. And so you likely know what's going to happen next. So, so humans have devoted themselves to, to decreation, to violence, and the trajectory of humanity on the earth is slowly heading down, down, down the toilet until it will become just an absolute mess of decreation. So what God does is God decides to accelerate that trajectory that humanity is on. And what he does is he commits an act of decreation where the sky, the land, and the sea all become one again in the flood. The sky comes down, the sea raises up, the earth is covered, and is once again a formless void, just temporarily, with the exception of Noah and his family and, you know, all the animals that went two by two. But when the water recedes, Noah and his family start this human project all over again with, with a promise from God that this isn't ever going to be in my plan again. Which is good because they don't do like a really good job of the human project once again. But God decides that he'll figure out something else when humans can't get their act together. And so through Noah's descendants, the, the world is repopulated and, and the humans definitely do take to being creative again. They focus their energy on trying to build a tower to go up to the heavens and be like gods. And this is a perversion of the mandate to rule creation on God's behalf. And what God decides to do in kind of a final creative act is spread the humans out across the earth, which populates the earth and sets the stage for the next movement in our story, which we'll talk about next week. And so that's all well and good, but, but how does this story, how does this part of the story, this kind of primordial history, like this was so long ago, how does this part of the story lead to Jesus? Well, perhaps in the most obvious way, here in the words from the Gospel of John, it says, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God, and all things came into being through him, and without him not one thing came into being. What has come into being in him was life, and the life was the light of all people. And the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not overcome it. So what John tells us is, is that, guess what? Jesus, also known as the Word, was not only there in the beginning with God, but was actually the primary creative actor in all of creation. 
And this really carries true with our understanding of Jesus as a miracle worker, as one who has power over the elements. This Jesus that we worship who did these amazing things among others. And in Mark 4, he calms the storm showing his control over the sky. And in Mark 6, he walks on the water, showing his control over the sea. In John 9, he uses dirt to heal a blind man's eyes, showing his control over the earth. Not to mention creating wine out of water, multiplying loaves of bread and fish, and the list continues on. See, what we find in the Gospels is that, that Jesus is the creator-in-chief, the, the one who came in human form to model for us the way that God has called all of humanity to act in this world in creative ways, rather than our typical means of destructive, decreative acts. But maybe you're like, ah, that's cool, uh, well and good. Uh, I like this Jesus. But here's the thing. Uh, I don't do miracles. I don't know about you. We're not God, right? And that's all true. That's true. And, and I'm not saying that, that you and I are called to go out and control the elements like Jesus can. But, but look at the other aspects of Jesus' creative personality. Jesus created life through the power of his presence in the world. He created communities out of ragtag assemblies of broken, outcasted, and hurting people. He created new life by, by meeting people where they were, inviting them to his table, and then speaking God's truth about them and the kingdom into their lives. He created a, a new world order that, that called people back to their original purpose. Jesus created creators. People who created a movement that we now call the church. A flawed but effective institution that drove most, if not all, of the creative innovation that the Western world boasts of. We created institutions of higher learning that encouraged the creation of new disciplines that probed our world and made it a more life-sustaining place. We built hospitals that pioneered life-saving technologies and procedures. We built orphanages that gave new life to those given a death sentence by the world. See, creation, it's in our DNA. It's what we've been called to, to be people to be a community that, that engages in the act of sustaining and protecting life. But so often, so often, we slip into cycles of decreation. Because in our brokenness and in our sin and in our, in our self-centeredness, we, we fall short. We fall short of, of living into our mandate to build and sustain a world that supports life. And instead, we, we tear down our world with violence, with indifference, with intolerance, with infighting, with general disobedience to the calling that God has placed on our lives to rule this world on his behalf. You see, although there's, there's a lot more to this story that leads to Jesus, it, it begins at the beginning with God's creative action and the purpose that he has given to each and every one of us. 
Now, if we're not actively working towards being persons in a church that supports God's creative activity, then we're, we're actually working towards decreation. And so it's up to us. It's up to us as God's people to be creators of communities, creators of new life by inviting people to God's table, by speaking truth and love into their lives, by calling them by the names that God has given to them rather than the names that this world has placed upon them. It's our job. It's our job to join in the creative, culture-transcending work of the church, the greatest creative force present in the world today. And you know, we are able, we're able to do all of this because of the fact that God used death to create life. That the cross, the the greatest weapon of decreation, right? The weapon that the world tried to use to kill God himself. Unleashed the creative power of God in this world. Death was turned over, and out of that grave came a new and remarkable creation, the the glorified new body of Christ, the, the blueprint of the new creation that is to come, our final hope of a new heaven and a new earth joined together to make an eternal and permanent home for God and his people to enjoy together forever. This is the story in the ends of creation. It's a story that finds its culmination in the person of Jesus. It's it's a story that, in its early stages, found its home in a garden. And Jesus' story, in its latter stages, found its home in a garden as well. But just before... Jesus was arrested in that garden. He shared a meal with his disciples, a meal that they shared with their disciples and that they shared with their disciples and that all throughout history has been shared with disciples down to us in this room together today. This is a meal that made it a very real promise that God made in creation known. It was an offer of life-giving elements, an offer of bread and a cup, signs of a new, renewed covenant, a new partnership between God and humans that would culminate in a new heavenly garden at the end of time. A partnership between God and humans to create a new and life-giving world while we wait. And so it's a meal that we take together, seeking to share in God's life-creating and life-sustaining mission to our world. And so, together with believers all over the world, believers all the way back through history. We celebrate the meal that Jesus shared with his disciples. And the night before he went to the cross, where he sat in the room with his disciples and he took bread and gave thanks to you, O God, and he blessed it and he broke it. He said to them, this 
this bread, this is my body, which is broken for you. Then after the supper was over, Jesus took the cup. And he gave thanks to God. And he blessed it and he said, this cup, this wine, this is my blood poured out for you. It's the the sign of a new covenant that I make with you here today. Do this every time you meet together in remembrance of me. It's these elements of life that would remain in the minds and in the hearts of the disciples as they witnessed the death of our Savior the following day. So let's pray together. Oh, holy God, we ask that you would meet with us today. That your spirit would be upon us, in us, and working through us in the ways that we love and in the ways that we hold on to one another and to you as your people. And so, God, we remember that you made us a promise, that you gave us a gift. And we ask that your Holy Spirit would be poured out on these gifts of bread in the cup, that they would very much be for us the body and blood of Christ, and that we might be a people, your body, redeemed by your blood and joined together in mission and ministry to this world. And so God, by the grace bestowed upon these gifts, change us Melt our hearts. Make us new. In Jesus' name, amen.